So, this week's Torah portion is Korach. Korach, I think, is one of the most famous and you could say infamous, terrible, tragic, disastrous stories that we have in the entire Torah. Okay, so before we get into the depth of this year, I always like to just go through briefly what was the story, what's a little bit of the background, okay? So what happened was, is Korach comes along. Who's this guy Korach? He's a great-grandson of Levi. He's actually from the tribe of Levi, which is ironic because his whole rebellion is basically going against the whole idea of superiority, and he comes from the superior tribe. Levi is the Levites and the Kohanim. So he comes from the tribe of Levi, and he was actually Moshe and Aaron's first cousin. So this could be another case you could say in the Torah of family feud. And he comes along and he says to Moshe that he feels that him appointing Aaron as the Kohen Gadol was a case of nepotism. That who says that Aaron's supposed to be the Kohen Gadol? Maybe Moshe said, look, I'm the leader of the Jewish people. I could, you know, anybody who's connected to me, I have good connections, good networking, they're going to get a good position. So my brother Aaron, he gets the high priest position, which is basically second in command to Moshe. So... Korach comes along and says, why do you do this? Why do you raise yourself up above the nation higher than everybody else? So Moshe and Aaron fall flat on their face. Again, meaning this is something which at this point it's becoming quite repetitive. Very sadly, you see last week with the spies, Moshe and Aaron are now falling on their face quite a bit over and over again. But it's really these stories, and that's what we're going to focus on today, is trying to find the silver lining, trying to find the positivity but it really is consistently the Jewish people in the desert making mistake after mistake and what we can glean from these mistakes. So it's not just like saying, oh, we're sitting here and we're bashing everything they did in the past. It's trying to take positive lessons going forward in the future. So Korach brings 250 men. How do they prove that Aaron is the high priest? They all bring incense, they all bring ketoret, and then the fire comes down and it only takes Aaron's and it doesn't take theirs. Moshe tells everyone, get away from them, get away from their tents, get away from them completely. The ground opens up and swallows them whole and everything that they own, okay? At a certain point in the rebellion, Dasan and Aviram, Datan and Aviram come along and Moshe tries to reason with them. Now, in order to understand this, the, the, the depth and the incredible um, mercy of this moment by Moshe, you need to understand who Dasan and Aviram were, okay? Dasan and Aviram were men who, and this of course Moshe remembers, Dustin Aviram were men that when Moshe was in Egypt, when he was still living in the house of Pharaoh, when he was the adopted son of the daughter of Pharaoh, the famous story where Moshe sees the Egyptian taskmaster beating the, uh, the Jew, and then he says God's name, the taskmaster dies, they go to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh goes to execute Moshe, his adopted grandson. Who were the two people in this story? Dustin and Aviram. After when the Jews leave Egypt, who were the two guys who stayed behind and said, we don't want to be part of the Jewish free slaves going out of Egypt? Das and Aviram. When Moshe tells the Jewish people, the man, when it comes down from heaven, you're going to take it at this, at this time. You're going to trust God. It's going to come the next day. All these different things. Who are the only two guys who break the rules? Das and Aviram. Okay? So when this rebellion happens with Korach, you might be thinking to yourself, it's not just these guys were troublemakers. These guys literally tried to kill Moshe at a time when he was extremely vulnerable in Egypt, way before he's the leader of the Jewish people. So you'd think to yourself, at this point, Moshe would be like, this is a great way that I have full justification to get rid of these two guys. These two guys are the bane of his existence. Over and over again, they've proven that they are just troublemakers, bad news. And this could be a way that Moshe could say, as a leader of the Jewish people, if the ground swallows them up, okay, fine. You know, we had two rotten eggs and let's just move on. Wipe a clean slate. Moshe tries to reason with Dustin and Aviram. And I think... 
my own personal take on this, the Torah specifically mentions reasoning with Dasan and Aviram to bring out this lesson. That Dasan and Aviram were the ultimate pinnacle of troublemakers. They literally tried to kill him. And who does he go to and try to convince that guys, you know, you still have a chance to turn back. You still have a chance to change their way. After God already sealed their fate, which is even just to realize the gravity of that, God had already decided that he's going to kill the entire rebellion of Korach. After God already makes that decision, Moshe says, wait, he goes to try and reason with Dustin and Aviram. So just to tell you the gravity of that moment, what happens? Moshe goes to try and reason with them. You know what they say back to him? They say, isn't it enough that you took us out of a land of milk and honey? Over here, they're referring to Egypt as a land of milk and honey to cause us to die in the desert. Now you want to lord over us. You have not brought us to the land of flowing milk and honey. Again, now the flowing milk and honey is Israel. Nor did you give us a field and a vineyard. Even if you would threaten to send someone to gouge out our eyes, we will not go up to you. They say this obviously very chutzpahdik, disrespectful remarks to Moshe's face when he's trying to save them from themselves. How does Moshe react? So in the simple explanation of the verse, Moshe becomes infuriated. But Rashi comes along, Rabbi Shlomo Yitzhaki, who actually explains the pshat, so really this is the simple explanation of the verse. Rashi comes along and says he was not infuriated. He was deeply pained. He was heartbroken to hear their response. So what I want to get into now, and I think this is very, very practical to our lives today, but also to bring out the lesson of Moshe's greatness, is if you look at that moment, you could say to yourself, as a leader, wouldn't it make sense that there should be some moments of severity? There should be some moments where you say, okay, listen, we could be the whole day, okay, love everyone, love everyone, kumbaya, let's all dance on the beach. But then at a certain point, a leader has to say, these guys are bad. That's it. There's nothing to be pained about. These guys got to go. And even at this moment, after everything Das and Aviram do, Moshe is pained greatly. Seemingly, he's acting very meek. He's acting like a sheep. Why is he acting that way? So over here, there's a beautiful, beautiful vart, a beautiful idea from Rabbi Yaakov Weinberg, Zechorna Levracha. May his memory be a blessing for us. That he says that in this moment, Moshe is teaching you what does it mean to love every single Jew unconditionally. Because we've been repeating this idea over and over and over and over again. But then there's times where you could say, you shouldn't love every Jew. There's times when a Jewish person, let's say somebody's a murderer. How can you say you should love this person? How is that possible? That sounds like a very fake, very unrealistic idea. So what Moshe is trying to show you here is that you separate the action from the person. Which that idea is really essential in society. Instead of saying, oh, this person is acting this way and therefore I don't like them. You say, I don't like the way that they're acting. And you see this in Tehillim. It says in Tehillim, you should pray not for the sinners to die. You should pray for the sins to die. That you separate the action and the human being. And this idea we see many, many times, especially in Israel, where in a country where we're constantly fighting with the Arabs, the Palestinians, the wars, what makes Israel so unique? Which by the way, I'll say as a side note over here, it was very painful that when I was Googling, I was looking, how do you have examples of Israel's morality as an army, right? So I'm thinking, I always know the way that they shoot, they always make sure there's no children, whatever. On Google, even in Israel, meaning sitting here that they have my location, they know everything about me, they probably are recording me the whole day, I don't know what. They, the entire Google feed was things anti-Israel. To find an article that was explaining the morality of Israel's army was like 15 articles down. It was the first one I found one article that proved. And I didn't Google, what's so mind-blowing about this, I didn't Google, oh, you know, tell me how Israel's an apartheid state. Or I didn't Google the negative. I Googled to try to find the morality. And Google brings me 15 articles showing how bad Israel is. Which just shows you today, meaning we spoke about this in last class, the whole idea of cognitive bias, that people, the reason why there's so much anti-Israel today is just because social media, 
they really control a lot of the way people think. Meaning, what do you think a guy in Arkansas, if he sees 15 Google articles against Israel and one pro-Israel, how can you blame the guy to be like, okay, what are you going to tell me different? Google told me. Rabbanit Google, <laughs> the all-knowing master, told me that uh, Israel is apartheid. So that's just a side note that's a little bit tragic to see. But this idea of loving unconditionally and separating the action from the person. I want to share one story that I think brings out this idea very well. This is a story I believe I've said before, but it's so fantastic. And even the way it's traveled, it's worth it to say again. I found the name of the guy. The story is with a guy named Berkechein. Okay? He was an old Russian Jewish chassid. One of the real unique, like you don't really have a few in a generation like this guy. Very unique, very holy, very good person through and through. He was a teacher in third grade. And when he was teaching in third grade, somebody stole a watch. And the kid's screaming, somebody stole my watch, somebody stole my watch, what am I gonna do? You have to find who it was. And you know, the kids make a whole uproar and then everyone's, the kid who's stealing his face is turning purple, he's petrified and everyone's freaking out. We have to find the Ghanav, we have to find the stealer. So the teacher says, okay, I have a solution. Here's what we're gonna do. Everybody's gonna close their eyes and they're gonna walk by my desk. And when they walk by my desk, close their eyes, everyone's gonna open their pockets. So there's gonna be noise of clinging on the table. No one's gonna know what's what. Everyone empty your pockets and the boy who has the watch will have a chance to put the watch on the desk and no one is gonna know. Sure enough, everyone goes, empties their pockets and the kid who has the watch emptied his pockets as well. The watch is on the desk, nobody knows. This kid grows up to become a teacher himself and he sees Rabbi Chain at one of these uh, teaching conferences of Jewish uh, you know, educators trying to be mechazik them, trying to tell them good things and direction and be more professional. And they're sitting by this conference and he walks over to his old teacher, Rabbi Chain. He says, Rabbi Chain, you remember me? You were a teacher, you inspired me to be a teacher. Rabbi Chain looks at him, the kid of his third grade, he's like, I don't, I don't remember you, I apologize, what's your name, this and that. He's like, you don't remember me? He said, I know usually you wouldn't remember a typical third grade kid, but me, I was the kid who stole the watch. And you don't remember that story, how you close, everyone empty their pockets? So he said, how do you not remember me? So Rabbi Chain said, my eyes were closed also. So the, the lesson over here, I feel like that story, it's a very famous story. That story, Rabbi Jacobson said, just to tell you how far it's gone, Rabbi Jacobson said, the Brazilian president, when he was running, when he was campaigning, he saw the story, translated it into Portuguese from Rabbi Jacobson and said, we need to learn from the Jews how to educate. So this idea of separating that kid, you might think to yourself, and I think the average person does think, if I'm a teacher, I need to know which kid in the class has the tendency to be a kleptomaniac or to be a stealer, right? I need to know for my teaching purposes. That's what you'd think. Instead, he just, whoever stole it, we're gonna move on, drop the watch on the desk, everyone's good. Just separating the action from the child. And that story to me is, really, there's no way to put it any better than that. But I wanna bring it a little bit more practical when it comes to parenting and education. That I actually looked up there's a website that goes through psychologically how to parent, how to educate, and what are techniques. And one of the main things that it says, which I thought was something which is mind-blowing, because today you hear a lot of times where people speak about emotions negatively. They say, oh, you shouldn't get angry. You have to work on your anger. What do people say mean when you're getting, well, you have to work on your anger? They mean you have to work on not getting angry. You have to work on not getting so upset. And what this website basically went through, and I believe this is the accepted, it's not a unique website, this is the accepted psychology today, is you're never supposed to put down a person's emotions or a person's feelings. Every emotion is an emotion that's okay. Every emotion is an emotion that's valid. And you're gonna say, how does that make any sense? Because a person can't control their emotions. You could try to think on other things and then that will control your emotions, but a person can't control their emotions. They can only control what they do. And the way to educate properly 
is to validate when a child has emotions from a young age, first of all, talk to them what they're feeling. Are they feeling sad? Are they feeling angry? Are they feeling upset? And the reason I'm talking about children is not just education, because really all of us are just big older children on the inside. And it's the ability to realize that every emotion is okay and every emotion is valid, but we don't need to act on our emotions. And when you focus on that is the technique, then you have a completely different world. And this applies today to adults getting angry, losing our tempers. It's not about, you can be very upset, you can be furious, you can be very sad, but can you scream in the middle of the marketplace? Can you randomly have a tantrum? No. Can you feel like you want to scream and want to have a tantrum in the marketplace? Absolutely. But you can't fall on the floor and start screaming, especially not in Pulitzer. Exactly. Exactly. No, but you need to separate the emotion from the action. And when you do that, it gives you so much more freedom to be able to control your emotions and your actions. Because then you're not trying to fight something which is impossible. We try to say, don't get so angry. Then the anger becomes pent up and it's going to explode. It's going to come out in action. You say, be angry all you want. Be, you could go outside and you could be super furious. But you can't go and punch someone in the face. It's, it's not one of the options. You can't explode and be violent. It's not a choice in society. So over here, one of the main things that it says in educational technique is showing children and showing ourselves how you can behave contrary to how you feel. Some days you'll wake up in the morning, I think everyone experiences this, some days you wake up in the morning and you're not interested. You're sad, you're not interested in working, you're not interested in your family, you're not interested. Today, you're apathetic. So how do you, what do you do at that, at that stage as an adult? It doesn't mean you stay in bed. You still get out of bed and you act contrary to how you feel. And that's a very powerful thing because it shows you your emotions don't control you. You can feel very sad, you don't have to put away that sadness, but you still can go and dive into your day. And the same with anger, you can be extremely angry, but that doesn't mean that you have to go and punch somebody in the nose. There's no reason why it has to come into a physical action. And this idea, applying it to this whole idea of loving unconditionally, is just repeating it again, because to me, I think I've been very repetitive and it's come across, which I'm very happy about, about unity and love. Let's say especially in Israel, right? There's a clear divide, a very strong divide. Right now, practically in Israel. So we're not speaking just, you know, maybe it happens in your day. You have the Chilonim, you have the Datim, the Haridim. I don't even really understand exactly where the divide starts. But there's a very, very strong political divide. And really in the world today, there's very strong political divides. So it's like, how could I sit at a table with somebody who's Chiloni and, and that wants to, you know, go and protest and everything? you can separate that this person's actions or this person's beliefs may not be the same as yours. And that's fine. So you don't have to agree with their actions. You could say I completely disagree with their action. But that doesn't mean you can't sit at the same table with the person. And it doesn't mean you can't love the person. You can love the person despite what they did. You could say the actions that they're doing, I fully disagree with. And it goes as far as somebody stealing, somebody doing a very heinous crime in society. You could say that crime that they did is a horrible, horrible thing but them as a person I still can love. It's separating the two things as much as possible. And I don't think you really have any better example in this than Moshe and Das and Aviram. Because you're not talking about guys who went in one time. They constantly, constantly, incessantly drove him completely insane, ruined his life over and not ruined his life, but they drove him nuts over and over again. And when they're about to be finally rid, he's about to finally be like, okay, fine. You know, God, God decided. He could be like, okay, God decided I'm stepping out of this. He still goes to save them. And the Torah goes out of the, its way to tell you specifically about Das and Aviram. Even though he's not, Korach was the leader. They also are part of it, but they're not necessarily so special. It's this idea the Torah is trying to tell us. And you see at the end of the whole rebellion, 
explains this idea very well as well. Because after they're swallowed up, you'd think the Jewish people, which really just shows you how stubborn we could be. Another lesson of this whole thing. How we have unbelievable ability to be stubborn, the Jewish people. After the ground swallows them, after God comes down, just give perspective here. God comes down and he clearly takes Aaron's fire pen, right? This is something everybody can see. Then the, the floor literally opens up and swallows them alive with all of their possessions. So you'd think everybody would be right in line and be like, okay, we got to behave today. Daddy's angry. It's time to, you know, run into line. What do they do? They come and they complain to Moshe. They say, you killed the people of God. They start screaming at Moshe. It's like, first of all, to be fearlessly stubborn to that extent, (laughs) unbelievable. They're complaining. Yeah. And God actually has to send another plague to deal with these people that are complaining about Korach being swallowed up. But the question is, why does the Torah tell you this last part of their complaining? is because what they're coming and saying, it's actually a very powerful idea. The Jews, they actually had a very valid claim. They were saying to Moshe, how is it possible that they did not get a chance to do tshuva? How come at no point in the story, Moshe, you didn't stop and you didn't pray on their behalf? Maybe you tried to convince them, but why didn't you pray for them? And these Jews were saying, yes, they got swallowed up. Yes, they deserved it. It was very clear. But they deserved one more small chance to be able to do the right thing. You should have prayed for them. You should have given them another chance. And those Jews were punished. But that idea is a very powerful idea. And that's why when the staff, after this happened, there was a second test. It was because of this wave of Jews that were like, why did you kill them? There was another test where they took all the staffs of the 12 leaders. People confused these two tests as one and the other. One, the incense was before they were all killed. That was to deal with Korach and his rebellion. After they were swallowed up, the Jews were like, why did you kill them? So there was another test where they took the 12 staffs of the 12 princes of the tribes. They put it next to the Ark in the Holy of Holies and only our own staff blossomed almonds and flowers. So what's another message, an underlying message of the almonds and flowers to show that it was only peace, that it was only love, that they weren't killed because Aaron or Moshe had animosity towards them and they prayed to God to swallow them up. It's because there was the only thing in that situation, which again, there's another lesson we could take today, is that there is a limit. At a certain point, if your actions reach the actions of Korach and the rebellion, they had to be punished. But it didn't have to be with hate from the Jews themselves. So even when it came to a point where it was like, okay, they need to be wiped out, they're going to be swallowed up, there still could be love from Moshe and Aaron towards them, even while they're being punished. And to end off with a beautiful story, which I think really ties us together, there was a guy named Rabbi David Trink. I never knew him myself, but I heard Rabbi Jacobson speak about him. I saw there's a book about him called Just Love Them. So I'm assuming his educational uh, method was really, really love. And he has many stories that are mind-blowing. He was the principal of a school in Adelphia, New Jersey. Not to be confused with Philadelphia. Adelphia. Because I was born in Philadelphia and I heard Adelphia, I was like, oh, but what happened to the Phila? And then I realized <laughs> it's, a different, it's a different place. <laughs> it's also not in New Jersey. Yes. Oh, so Rabbi David Trink, he had this yeshiva. And there was a boy who did not keep Shabbat. He was a big troublemaker, big, you know, mischievous guy. And he decides one Shabbat, he's going to break into Rabbi Trink's office steal his car keys, and he's going to go to the movie theater on Shabbat. Just to do like one of those big, you know, middle fingers to the, the whole system. So he goes and he's breaking into the office. Another kid sees him. And the kid says, what are you doing? He says, I'm stealing the keys. I'm going to the movie theaters. He's like, I want to come with you. So he says, no, listen, I am doing my thing. This is not a party. This is not a, you know, you're not invited. This is just me. So the kid says, if you, don't, if you don't take me with you, I'm going to go and tell on you. So he says, fine, go and tell on me. Like, what do you think? Like, you think at this point I care? Like, well, I'm not running away from anybody. Kid breaks into the office, takes the keys. The other kid is true to his word. He walks to Rabbi Trink's house. Rabbi Trink is in the middle of sitting, sitting in his Shabbos meal. He tells him, Rabbi Trink, there's a kid who took your keys driving to the movie theaters. 
So our Trink asks, which movie theater is he going to? He said the closest one by whatever. All right, Trink gets up, he gets his coat, and he starts walking to the theater. He comes to the movie theater. It's a two-mile walk in the winter. He comes to the movie theater, and he starts looking through all the theaters. I don't know if you've ever been in a movie theater looking for someone. He didn't know which movie he's in, and he didn't know. So he's walking into each theater. You see a rabbi come in on Friday night in a winter coat, looking in the theater, peeking in, looking at everyone's faces, going from theater to theater. It was quite a spectacle. And he comes to the theater. He finds the boy. And he comes in and he sits down next to him. And the boy feels someone next to him. The boy's looking at the theater. It's dark and everything. He feels someone next to him. And he looks and he sees Rabbi Trink. And he's obviously like, you know, completely shell-shocked. To anybody who's been in yeshiva could relate to this idea. This is a complete shock to him. And he's like, Rabbi Trink, what are you doing? Rabbi Trink is like, shh, it's the middle of the movie. Like, what are you, <laughs> what are you doing? I got everyone's here paying to watch. He's like, what are you doing here? He's like, I want to tell you something. He said, I looked at the hefsher. He said, the popcorn in this theater is not kosher. The popcorn in the theater is not kosher. Everything else, the soda and everything is kosher. You should enjoy. And I hope to see you in yeshiva soon. And that's it. And he got up and walked out. Varachank is walking and he feels someone next to him also. And he looks and it's the boy. And the boy said, Rabbi, I can't have you walk alone home by yourself. I'm going to walk home with you. And for the whole walk for two miles... Rabbi Trank is just joking with him, having a nice conversation with him, having a good time. He was a very, the way he's described, a very, very charismatic, very funny person. A very big guy, very nice guy. And he's just joking with the kid the whole way home. The kid comes back to the yeshiva, and he, from that moment on, he never broke another Shabbat. He was one of the best kids in the yeshiva. And I think it's one of these stories, it's very hard to, like, every situation to know exactly what to do. We're not prophets, we're not geniuses, we're not, we all are flawed, everyone, educational, yeah. Principals and teachers, they can't be expected to be, you know, God, angels. But over here, you learn just a simple lesson that his style, the book written after him is called Just Love Them. The style of just to love as unconditionally as possible, as humanly as possible, it always breaks down to the core and it always gets to its intended target. That's it. Hey,